Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. Hi, everybody. Lunch up this week. So this week we got myself, Mike, he, him from Turn Leftist, and Ward, he, him from Turn Leftist. We also got Nick, he, him from the Intervention Podcast. We got Brian, he, him from the Cars and Comrades Podcast. How you guys doing? How you going? Howdy. Good, buddy. How are you? Good, good. So tonight we're going to uh, trash Biden and the Dems. I think we spent last week talking about MAGA communism. And even though uh, we didn't directly shoot on Republicans or MAGA, it was mostly just <laughs> shitting on a left faction, I guess, that is aligning themselves with MAGA. But I, I guess we thought it would be balancing it out to uh, shit on the, the left, shit on Dems and Biden and everything. I know we, we've been looking for opportunities to do this anyway. I think, Nick, you had had some previous things you had mentioned before about the Biden administration, we did a recent episode about it and how close he's been inching us to nuclear war. And that's yeah. like mostly what I brought tonight to talk about. But uh, Nick, I'll actually hand it to you to get started. Uh, you see what I have. If you want to tie in anything that I brought, go for it. But uh, what do you got for us? For sure. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> just near and dear to me. And this is also just a, a, a tired point on the left, but just that the Democrats and Republicans, when it comes to foreign policy, especially are just indistinguishable, right? So I I think it's so apparent the level of hypocrisy um, that someone like Biden can go up and kind of display. Uh, When you look at the uh, address he gave to the United Nations General Assembly, um, their 77th session, this was like four days ago at this point. So obviously the uh, Ukraine war is a big part of what he's talking about. So I don't know. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just like a couple quotes that we could pick out of this and read. And I just like like to put myself in the position of like a global South country when they're hearing this fool come up and say this kind of stuff. And like, just they must be like laughing to themselves at some level. So like, let's start out. So this is just his opener. So Mr. President, Mr. Secretary General, my fellow leaders, in the last year, our world has experienced great upheaval, a growing crisis in food insecurity, record heat, floods, droughts, COVID-19 inflation, and a brutal, needless war, a, wo- a war chosen by one man, to be very blunt. So, okay, one man, man, you know, just wakes up. <laughs> yeah, Putin just wakes up one day and decides, oh, we're going we're gonna to go to war for no good reason at all, right? So, I don't know. And then he says, let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter, no more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. So it's like, okay, has any member of the United Nations Security Council um, just basically toshed the United Nations Charter in the trash heap more regularly than the United States. Like, are you kidding me? Like, how does how did they have the audacity to get up here and say shit like this? Well, they weren't Go neighbors, ahead. Nick. You got to note that very important yeah. word there, neighbors. I was glad <laughs> right. to listen to Ben Norton point that out because I wouldn't have caught it myself. Like, no, you know, as he was saying it, I was like, he's using this word so much because I listened to the speech before too, and I'm like, he's using this so intentionally here to kind of put that relationship, but it absolves him. You know, it absolves him from going into, you know, voting for the Iraq war, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I don't know how, like, any nation just south of Mexico gets excluded from that. You know, I think that might have been an oversight on his part. I mean, I would still mm-hmm. call that a neighbor, but I don't know. It's just like, how do these Honduras, people. Venezuela, like any of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, how do they get up here right and there, still too. say this shit? Go ahead. Sorry. No, Puerto Rico's right there. Like, how's right. that not a neighbor? Like, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, I'm just wondering like who in the world still believes this shit when they go up and say this, you know what I mean? Like they can stay, they still get to paint themselves as the global good guy. Like, is anybody buying this? I mean, I guess only people, liberals in the U S. Yeah. I, if I can tell a quick anecdote, um, my coworker was talking about someone that's on another shift. Um, and he's like, oh, this guy is super far left, like super duper far left. Oh, no. He's like always talking about how he loves Biden and supports Ukraine and stuff. <laughs> it's oh, like geez. I just had to bite my tongue. I'm like, OK, yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty far left. Yeah, sure. OK. <laughs> but yeah, I no, mean, I, there's sorry, all these people that I that I respect, like just posting propaganda like 
it's like don't you think critically about this before you post it like come on like that that whole um what is it that whole thing about the naval base and the like russian ship fuck you or whatever like people are still talking about that today like even if it was disproven but uh sorry if i was talking over someone no it's good i um i was thinking a bit about the whole ukraine situation coming into tonight because i feel like it is just going to come up it is the scariest part of this whole thing for me like if we're going to criticize biden and what the dems are doing so far uh stoking nuclear war is i think the biggest part of that i think it's the worst part of that and you know putin is the one who's obviously threatening to use nukes in ukraine uh, I don't know what the extent of the threat is, but I guess I, I honestly don't understand how even the idea of a limited strike with nukes is even something that's on the table. Because from what I understood, and you know, mostly from information I get from Ward, I was under the impression that if you launch even one nuke, like it's just no holds barred nuclear war uh, the world over because of like all the protection systems that different countries have in place. Um, I could be confusing Doctor Strangelove with reality. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a fucking nuclear scientist. I don't work for U.S. Defense Department. But yeah, I was, go ahead. Sorry. sorry, I was going to say like either Doctor Strangelove or uh, General MacArthur in in yeah. the Korean War was like, oh, let's 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 bomb China just for fun, you know. Or the yeah. uh, I also did just hear about the Samson Protocol or the Samson Defense that Israel has apparently, which is like this last resort where they say if they feel like they're under attack or they're going to lose the majority of their territory, they will launch nuclear weapons that just uninvolved countries like they will just end all of humanity like they have it's the samson protocol or the samson defense or something i heard about it on ramiro's podcast um yeah it's a crazy thing to think about but totally unrelated to this <laughs> my point of bringing up nukes in, in general was because like i said putin is apparently threatening to use them in some capacity and then the u.s's response to this is to say very clearly if he does that they will annihilate every military base every naval base like every strategic piece of i guess infrastructure that russia has uh the u.s has just basically made it clear that they have missiles set on all of these targets and will launch them if you know putin uses a nuclear weapon and i don't know i just also also try to think of this from putin's point of view because i feel like what we try to do is understand these things from everyone's different everyone's point of view like even if i think about israel i try to understand it from the point of view of zionist jews jews who are not in favor of a Zionist project, people who are totally uninvolved in it, people from Palestine, like you can understand. And, you know, then you have people who are like just the far right evangelicals who don't even know why they support Israel. They just are being told to. And the same situation, I think, is very true with Ukraine. It's like you have these competing narratives, like you have the neoliberals, like you were saying, Bryant, who just support Ukraine blindly because the Democrats told them to. They think Putin is literally a fascist uh, and they don't think about it any further than that. Further than that. They just think that, like you said, Nick, Putin just woke up one day out of the fucking blue and decided to invade Ukraine for like, no, I get, well, the reasons they think involve resources. They think it's like purely selfish reasons involving resources, territory or whatever. And they call this imperialism and they genuinely see NATO as a defensive organization worth keeping around. And then you have the far right, which is like the Tucker Carlson variety. And they see Democrats as fascists arming a bunch of fascists in Ukraine and they say that they're the real patriots who want to cut the military funding and stop all this billions of dollars in military and weapons going over to Ukraine and bring it back home and build up the U.S., which they never actually want to do because if they get in power, they never cut defense spending or anything. And then I guess their view of NATO is that it's like the, the cabal. You know what I mean? Like they want to destroy the cabal of the deep state and everything. And I guess that's how they view NATO because they also have like a childish view of all this stuff. Um but then they also will oppose or support NATO just depending on whatever the politicians, whatever the media cycle tells them. Like if Trump tells them to, they will support NATO. And yeah. Trump has never had any clear stances for or against NATO. He's been wishy-washy about, wishy-washy about that the whole time. Um, but then us as anti-imperialist leftists, we like to try to see the, the entire picture. And I think we pretty broadly see the U.S. as the aggressor with NATO as its puppet. And most of you are plumped in with that. And whether you agree with this framing or not, you can't deny the objective facts of the U.S. and NATO expansion over the last few decades. And you may think that that's a great thing if you're a neoliberal or a neoconservative, but you can't deny that from Russia's point of view, this is scary. This is like aggression near their borders. Like the U.S. overthrew the Yanukovych government and has fomented a civil war in Ukraine on Russia's borders. And that is 
to Russia an act of aggression that's like something they are definitely scared of. And you have the U.S. Yeah, doing it, this. Sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish finish your thought, man. Well, I was just going to say, like, you have the U.S. who has 900 military bases around the world and is the only country to have ever used nukes on another country. It's like that's what the U.S. is to other countries around the world. It's like this is the new Nazi Germany. But go ahead, Nick. And it's also like, because one thing I, I get thrown back at me with liberals is like, well, you know, to, to frame it as a proxy war kind of dismisses like the agency of the Ukrainian people. And it's like, you have people like Lloyd Austin documented calling it as such. Mike Pompeo documented calling it as such. So it's like, don't like, like you, you do you think those guys give a fuck about the agency of the Ukrainian people, right? It's like, why, you know what I mean? You can still support like people's movements without just turning into a lapdog for fucking imperialists, you know? Like you can still support that. Like, I don't think any of us are like, uncritical supporters of of Putin or anything like that. It's just like, okay, but like the alternative response is not to just get on board with U.S. imperialism. Like, come on. And like just on the the nuclear point, it's like, okay, if we really want to do something, it's like, why aren't we, you know, coming to the peace table? You know what I mean? Like, why aren't we facilitating peace talks? And there's a lot of evidence coming out now that like there was, you know, at least the framework for, um, peace agreements. And honestly, if we go back to Minsk too, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of these things could have been averted if they were actually implemented. But, you know, more and more, there's evidence coming out to show that the U.S. NATO, and when we say NATO, we should mean U.S. because it's, it's U.S. dominated, right, have basically demolished, demolished what could have kind of prevented this from, from us ever getting to this point, right? And that's what scares the shit out of me. And that's why when like people are like, oh, and we, we, I made this point on our podcast last week. It's just like, you know, one of the things about like Trump or like DeSantis, it's like the nutcase with the nuke button. And it's like the way Biden manages it, the way he, you know, basically allows Pelosi to go over to Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. It's like these people are just as dangerous with like the largest nuclear arsenal, the largest military in the world, you know, like there's no distinction. Sorry, Brian, you were going to say something. No, no, that's all good. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely I, I don't support um, Putin or Russia in its current state uh, or the government of it. Um, but like the United States has been fucking with Russia since 1917 and like hardcore since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, like I, I know that um, I think it was Putin or maybe um, Yeltsin wanted to join NATO at some point in the 90s. And they're like, no, no, we don't want you. Um, so, like, you know, say what you will about Russia, but like, they've at least tried diplomatically to engage with the U.S. in the in the past and were rebuffed. And you can see their current attitude as a result of that. They're like, okay, fine, fuck you. We're going to do our own thing and not try to cooperate with you because you're not trying to cooperate with us. Um, and to Bring it back to uh, a, a sort of tangential uh, connection with Israel. I don't have the article in front of me, but I think Zelensky was saying that his model for what Ukraine will look like after the war, after they've won, it presumably, um, is like Israel, is more of a police state that's very locked down and militarized. And... I, I don't think they're going to have the the economics uh, or maybe they will have the U.S. support, the uh, military aid to back that up. But it, it's just a scary thought, you know. Well, they'll have the neoliberal investment to come in yeah. and, you know, continue to privatize what, you know, institutions are, I guess, what semblance of institutions are left over from the uh, the Soviet era. Right. But that what remains will all get privatized. I mean, I actually read a book on Zelensky. It's called um, Globalization. Or, uh, I can't remember what it is. I'll find it in the night. We can put it in the links. But it's basically about how Zelensky's rise to power was actually very similar to Trump's in the way that he kind of adopted this uh, populist message, right? And he also ran on like a, a platform of like unity and stuff like that. But like when we actually looked at what's going on in the background, I mean, it's a program of neoliberalization. Just yeah. fully, fully, like objectively, right? You, you can just look at the economic statistics, the business transactions, and that's what's going on. Yeah. When he's yeah, I mean, outlawing all the left parties right now. Right. You know. To, to listen to all the shows that we like, you know, Ben Norton's show, Brian Becker's show, it's like they're constantly talking about 
the U.S.'s goals and Europe's goals, pretty much NATO's goals in Ukraine, and it was to privatize any of the still nationalized public services that they had there. And that's mm -hmm. basically the end goal of all the contracts that they're drawing up to to try and end this conflict. Anything that they're doing in the process of this invasion and fighting against Russia and everything, economically what they're doing with the political parties, like you're saying, out on the left parties, like this is all an attack on labor there. Like they want to open up Ukraine and its vast natural resources and its labor to Western industries and then would gut that like they've done with every other country because that is what the U.S. does with countries. That's what they do to puppet states. And yeah, I think, Brian, you're right. They they probably do want a two-state solution at best. Like uh, they have this occupied zone of Donetsk and Lugansk or whatever, and they have these people that are locked down. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know enough about the resources at hand and the technicals of all the conflict to know what would best suit both parties that would allow them to both act like they've won and not lost, you know, because it seems like that's also part of it. You want to act like you have negotiated something that is beneficial to you. No one wants to admit a loss. So I don't know how that will play out, but I do think that, yeah, they could have the funding and the, it would be in the U.S.'s best interest to extend the conflict as long as possible and to, to extend the peace as long as possible into some kind of some kind of security state that they could fund with North of Grumman. They would love that shit. Like, Yeah. <laughs> So this um, is just part of his speech, I think, which is just funny to read as we kind of talked about that. He he says, you know, as he continues to talk about this and being in, you know, solidarity with Ukraine, he says, now it's no secret that in the context, contest between democracy and autocracy, the United States and I, as president, champion a vision for our world that is grounded in the values. The United States is determined to defend defend and strengthen at home and around the world because I believe democracy remains humanity's greatest instrument to address the challenges of our time. We're working with the G7 and like-minded countries to prove democracies can deliver for their citizens, but also deliver for the rest of the world as well. I'm waiting for this democracy to deliver for its citizens. <laughs> right? Oh. That's the whole thing about it. Like, I was criticizing all the, the 900 military bases and what I had wrapped that all up with in my notes was bring it back around to Biden, like he could do something about school shootings, the cost of living crisis. Uh, you know, I guess gas is maybe going down a little bit, but it's still way higher than it was even just like a couple of years ago. Uh, and we all know how rents and groceries are doing. COVID, like any of this stuff, he could like address any of that stuff and he doesn't. He's too busy arming and funding Ukraine. Uh, I don't know, like, like I said, making it clear that he's got this button that will destroy all of Russia's military if he presses it, which is like, a crazy amount of saber rattling to do when nuclear options are on the fucking table. Um, and then also purposely engineering the next recession by hiking the interest rates. Like to think that like, I don't know. I, I think it's funny when people get mad at a president for gas prices. And then when they see things like interest rate hikes or like this, that is now going to purposely call us the next recession because it's the only thing that they know how to do with the fed to tackle like inflation or what they call the employment crisis as in like, unemployment is just too low and so like workers are just being able to demand things of their potential employers now and quiet quitting as they're calling it it's like that's their only tool in the toolbox is to raise interest rates and then hope that it screws everyone enough that they go back to work for shit wages and they're purposely causing recession not only doing that but admitting that they are purposely causing recession and it blows my mind that like out of all the things that could be done you could do like I don't know, anything that would meaningfully redistribute the hoarded profits. Everyone has seen all the graphs of like the amount of money that was taken away from working class people over the years of the pandemic so far and how much richer billionaires got. And it's like the exact proportion that people lost. It's like you could do something to meaningfully, meaningfully redistribute the hoarded profits to fix the real estate hoarding, like all the empty houses and all the homelessness crisis that's going on. Um, you could nationalize things. You could like turn things into utilities. Any number of things could be done. These are all possibilities if you have the political will and the imagination, but you're only going to get 10K in student loans and a fucking dark branding campaign, and that's supposed to convince you to go vote in these midterms. And a lot of people are going to fucking do it, so it's just not going to get any better than that. I don't know. So on top of the <clears throat> imperialism point, I think the, uh, the appointment of uh, Powell as the as the fed chair or whatever the fuck role he has um yeah is another kind of smoking gun in terms of evidence of the fact that like at the end of the day like it doesn't matter who the president is it doesn't matter what party they're from they're the same because he was appointed by trump originally as well right and so we have the quote unquote you know fdr of 2020 right 
coming in and we've got his fed chair coming out and saying, well, you know, employment is too, people have, workers have too much power right now, right? Our most progressive labor friendly president ever. This is his guy running the kind of the central bank right now. Right. And then the other thing about this is it's like, why are we just accepting? Because every time you see an article come out about like unemployment, it's like, unemployment's at a good level right now, around three to 5%. It's like, why are we just accepting that this is like a feature of a functioning society that, th- that, you know, we need to have un- people, people unemployed to make this work. We need, yeah. we need it for capitalism to work. We need the reserve army of labor, right? Like, it's just like, they always say the quiet part out loud eventually. Uh, quick anecdote. Uh, you know, back when I used to be a, a lib, I listened to NPR planet money, uh, podcast a lot. And they had an economist on there and they were like, now what would happen if there was full employment in the United States, if there was zero people unemployed? And the economist was like, oh, I I don't know. Like, that would be, I've never thought of that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) what if things worked well? Like, yeah, just like her brain froze up and couldn't, couldn't figure out what would that, the implications of that. Like, I don't know. And they didn't they didn't explore that concept any further in the podcast, of course. But <laughs> sorry, at a certain point, it does come down to it. no. I mean, it's great. Like we were talking about it before, and talking about my arguments with these end caps, and it's like it does come down to questioning assumptions. And at a certain point, yeah. you have to start questioning the assumptions of who is supposed to benefit from the system the way it works. And when you start questioning that and start wondering if it's really possible to have it any other way then you start asking some very dangerous questions about the current socioeconomic and political status of the u.s nick did you have some more from that speech because i also was going to mention sort of in that same vein was the princeton study something that ben norton mentioned in his critique of this same uh speech no i i would move on from that because as i'm reading the things that i highlighted it's just going to go to a place where i'm just repeating myself over and over again um just i guess in in general something that we might want to also touch on and it's related to this entire situation is just how they continue to escalate this cold war with china as well which is another dangerous proposition for you know global stability which they you know profess to desire so much right you know but one thing he pointed out too in this speech, right? And, you know, sorry, I will actually maybe not quote something, but at least point something out, right? So he's talking about expanding um, the number of both permanent and non-permanent representatives on the uh, on the Security Council, right? And this is ostensibly under the guise of giving representation for countries in like Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, right? Then he says, and the U.S. is committed to this work of like expanding representation, And he says, in every region, we pursued new constructive ways to work with partners to advance shared interests from elevating the quad in the Indo-Pacific to signing the Los Angeles Declaration of Migration and Protection at the Summit of the Americas to joining a historic meeting of nine Arab leaders to work toward a more peaceful, integrated Middle East to hosting the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in December. So just as a point, like, who are they trying to elevate? The quad is an anti-China alliance essentially in the Indo-Pacific, the right? So like the are always talking about, they're like the neoliberal Asian con- countries th- that the U.S. has managed to pretty much make puppet states of. I think the quad is um, India, Japan, South Korea, and might be, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm missing the last one, but they're all, my point is that they're all U.S. allies, right? Like yeah. vassal states at some level, right? Or the governments that run them are. So it's like, sure, they'll elevate people to positions within the Security Council as either permanent or non-permanent members as long as they are going to continue to facilitate U.S.-led global capitalism, right? And not disrupt the apple cart in any way, right? So again, it goes back to this whole idea that the UN, and there's a lot of leftists that, well, not a lot, but like, I've encountered some leftists that like to focus on this, if we adopt the UN charter, like truly, and we can get like a version of the United States or whatever it may be to actually buy into the UN charter by the letter, it would be a good thing, right? Because it's actually in principle, like a good formation, right? But it's just so dominated by US capitalism and ends up just being a vehicle in a lot of ways to meet the interests of capitalism and imperialism. I don't know. It's just like, they're doing the same thing that they do on every level. Like they have this language of inclusivity and representation and shit like that, but it's just, it's disguising, you know, what's actually going on. Well, that's the reason I hadn't even mentioned the Princeton study, because again, just a quote from Ben Norton, because he just does such a good job with these things. But I mean, if anyone's not familiar before I start going off on it, 
the whole Princeton study, just anyone should Google it or I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but the Princeton study is just proving objectively that the U.S. is not a democracy. It looked at the span of decades and saw the number of policies that were supported by the majority of people in the U.S. and then saw the, the policies that were supported by the moneyed elites and guess what got enacted and what didn't. And it was very obvious. And it's, and it's obvious to any grown adult who's been paying attention for even just their short lifetimes. You know, you can see what happens in politics. You can see what people obviously support and the things that are very reasonable things like Medicare for all legalizing marijuana, like free college, all the stuff that has been cried for and that gets shot down as socialist when Bernie Sanders said it, but that every reasonable person knows is perfectly within reason and within the ability of the U S to do if it were to just stop funding the 900 military bases, just even quite as much, not even, like, not even at all. But, um, to even bring up the Princeton study, the, the reason I mentioned it is because of that harping on democracy, like you were saying, and how hypocritical, how, how sorry, how hypocritical it is of Biden to harp on democracy and say that the U.S. has this interest in spreading democracy, openly talking about like regime change in Russia, saying that like Putin cannot remain in power because of this whole Ukraine invasion. It's like the fact that the U.S. feels like it needs to do regime change on someone else because they had the audacity to invade another country, as if the U.S. has never done that, and then had that leader been re-elected like after doing so it's like it's fucking ridiculous and of course it's one thing to just to point out the hypocrisy but i know I, I guess that is like what i would like to confront liberals with i always have this imaginary liberal in my head it's like the kind of people who talk about like politics at the electoral level it's like i don't understand like that childish level of analysis it's like how are you caring about the midterms if you should and most i think Grown adults, if you if you press them, will understand that they don't actually have any control over their government and they don't live in a democracy, but they still will then just kind of like lose track of the conversation when it gets to that point because it's too uncomfortable and they want to go talk about if Stacey Abrams is done for, which she, she very much is. Like, say goodbye to Stacey Abrams. <laughs> Would you have a word? Sorry. Yeah, no, like we want to talk about or Biden wants to talk about like, oh, honoring democracy and like not invading small countries. But like we literally just like they just had. U.S. military drills in conjunction with South Korean military to like simulate invading North Korea and assassinating Kim Jong Un. Like the hypocrisy is blatant. Yeah, yeah. Just recently, before a couple of days ago, I saw that the U.S. is now sending troops into Somalia. I haven't even looked into why. I have no idea why the U.S. is doing that. But this is right after, you know, Biden is saying to the U.N. We can't let Putin just. Uh, Send troops wherever. That's not what uh, you're, you're allowed to do to sovereign countries. It's like, what are we doing here? Yeah, I'm to that to that point. I need to do an episode on Africom at some point, just because so much has been going on for decades over there through that you know essentially covert arm of U- U.S. imperialism that we don't hear a damn thing about. I yeah, I do know that one of my old co-workers was a uh, former military and he's like, Oh yeah. One of my old squad mates died in Somalia recently or whatever it was a couple years ago. And I was like, Whoa, there's, there's Why? troops there. I didn't know. I didn't know there was troops there. <laughs> and uh, he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, you don't really hear about it too much, but they're doing something. They can't tell me about it. Which is crazy. Cause it almost makes me want to work backwards and say like, okay, where does the U S focus most of its endeavors uh, that we don't know about. Like, we obviously know about the China and Russia saber-rattling and everything. And I, it makes me wonder, like, what, is there some kind of socialist movement going on that's, like, up and coming in Somalia or in, like, these African countries that we're just not aware of and the U.S. is nipping them in the bud? Because I guess that's what I would also like to explain to the hypothetical liberal. It's like, you should understand that the U.S. is doing fascist shit. Like, when you hear that the U.S. is pivoting to Asia, when you hear that AFRICOM is just a thing... Like, you should listen to leftists when we say that the U.S. is arming a bunch of far-right militias somewhere in another country and using your tax dollars to do it, because that's what they have always done and will continue to do. And just because you found out about the ones in the 70s recently doesn't mean that the operations that are going on right now don't mirror that exactly. Like, it's the same thing. It's never going to stop. And that's why, like, the whole China imperialism, Chinese, you know, debt trap diplomacy is just pure fucking projection by, you know, someone like Biden. It's just... You protest too much, man. Like, yeah, when it like was just it just was what, announced less than a month ago that um, China relieved the debts like twenty seven debts of twenty three countries. Like, really going to claim debt trap diplomacy still at this point? Yeah, 
China just um, forgave debt in 27 nations. Here's why that might not be a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I literally just posted a meme that was the uh, yeah. China will collapse in three days and the video is three weeks old. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't look at that. anything that the IMF is doing over there or anything. Right. Mike, was that like a Gordon Chang fucking article? That did you like? Oh. No, it was a YouTube video. It was like Lao Y. I've never even looked at the. It was I got it from Discord. I always get my screenshots of shitty YouTube videos from Discord. I don't really watch YouTube. Yeah, Gordon Chang is like this like uh, Western like supposed expert on China who's been publishing articles for like two decades about how China's going to collapse. But even he's saying like all those claims that there's a coup in China are bullshit. Oh, do yeah, you guys I mean, think that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was going to say, I've been waiting for the China collapse for 20, 30 years now. Like, the U.S. has been predicting it every six months for how many decades? Go ahead, Nick, sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, do you think that there has been, like, a turn in the recent years where even foreign nations, like, I know, I think Cuba specifically looked at, like, the Democrats as some kind of form of, like, quote-unquote, like, harm reduction, right? Because they were, like, a little bit softer on them, right? And maybe that only goes back to Obama, but just even, like, rhetorically. So I don't know. I mean, maybe this is, I don't think in practice it's, you know, super, a super stark delineation historically, but like, I don't think there's an, even the veneer of difference on the international stage at this point between the two parties. Right. No. I mean, as you were saying that I was thinking of back to Obama loosening san- sanctions and restrictions on Cuba and how nice that seems in comparison to what Trump did, especially during COVID when it really hurt Cuba and they were hurting for medical supplies and syringes and things. And we talked about that at length in our episodes on Cuba. But the the main point of that is that the sanctions and the blockades and everything, despite what the U.S. may claim about there being exceptions for food and medical supplies, there absolutely is not. Because Mm -hmm. if you look into it even the slightest bit, companies refuse to do business with sanctioned and embargoed countries because they don't want to risk crossing the U.S. and all the business detriment that that would entail. So they just don't do business, and then these countries don't get what they absolutely desperately need um, as a result of the sanctions, despite, like I said, the rhetoric of the U.S. saying that it doesn't include medical or food or anything like that. Um, but, yeah, thinking back to, like, Obama loosening that, it's, like, great that he did that, and then Trump comes in and tightens it right back up and makes it even worse, and then Biden comes in and doesn't undo it. So I don't know if it's just that Biden is particularly far right, even among Democrats, but or if that's just the... The new MO of the U.S. is just right. never loosen up on anything. But you see the exact same treatment for the DPRK. It's like these are the two most isolated countries that the U.S. has the most hostile intentions toward. And the playbook is the same with both. is just to lock them down and never loosen up the restrictions no matter who gets in office. Well, and even like <clears throat> another, you know, common example is with Iran, with the JCPOA or whatever, right? And like that all occurs under Obama. And I don't want to seem like I'm trying to frame Obama as some kind of like international angel or anything like that right but like i guess some like minor decent things happen right like so that you have the jcpoa trump unilaterally withdraws from it in the u.s right and biden doesn't try to get back into it and he's saying that I- iran is kind of the barrier to you know the re getting you know reforming that agreement right so which one is it you know we're, we're the ones that withdrew from it originally Oh, yeah, you know what? I was going to say, like, I'm pretty much out of uh, stuff to say about the topic so far about just Biden and his U.N. speech or, I guess, related to what we said so far. But I would like to mention the Iran thing because that's been coming up a lot. And I've noticed already a bunch of contention among leftists about whether or not they should, quote unquote, support Iran or support the military police, which is a weird. I don't think anybody's supporting the military police. It's like even the most like. I, okay, so I've also recently blocked like every even close to chauvinist leftist I've had on my Instagram for like however long because they're all now pat socks and they've all kind of fallen the way of the, the CIA psyop there. But even the ones that like support every anti-imperialist country seemingly uncritically, even though that's not the case if you actually press them on some things, no one supports Iran or the Iranian military police or like hurting women because of hijabs. They just want the U.S. to stay the fuck out because I think even at a, a quick glance, you can realize the U.S. has no place to criticize the way any other country's police treat its citizens. Like right off the bat, just flat out, period. There is no standing for the U.S. to criticize any other country in the world 
for the way their police treat their citizens for any reason whatsoever. That being said, of course, Iranian military police should not be like imposing Sharia law on people or making or beating women up or forcing them to wear hijabs or forcing people not to wear hijabs if they want to wear hijab. It's like fucking let people do what they want to do. That will always be our stance and like respect people's religious freedom. Like if people are Muslims and they want to wear hijab, great. Don't force them. I mean, I'm repeating myself now, but that's the whole thing. But the U.S., again, saying that they need to get involved militarily or like bring up the idea of regime change, of course, because of this, like some protests in Iran, it's like, get the fuck out of here. If you're still following for this, go back to your SOS Cuba a year ago. I can't take it seriously. Like let the Iranian people take care of that, right? Yeah. Uh, the U.S. military has nothing to do with it. Nothing will be good. I mean, if you need any evidence that U.S. intervention does nothing to actually help the plight of women in, you know, West Asia, or you know, the, whether real or not, just look at look no further than Afghanistan, right? How'd that turn out? Yeah, and and I guess to like try and tackle all the points. No, I don't think that this is a U.S. color revolution, like that the woman was like some kind of CIA psyop and they put her up to being in the right place at the right time to get beat up by the cops. It's like, no, they are responding to something that happened. It's like they see an incident, it's a flare up, there's some protests. So then the U.S. is going to insert its influence in any way it can, direct or indirect. And that would be the extent of a color revolution is that they are sponsoring people. Like, I'm sure, of course, the U.S. has operatives in every country that is hostile towards. They have military bases all over the place. So of course, as soon as they heard about some protests over something that they could play in the U.S. media for women's rights issues that would be very sympathetic for U.S. audiences, you can bet the operatives went into action. A bunch of people got woken up, a bunch of sleeper cells or whatever, whatever bullshit code words they have. That's what happened. And people went into action. And that's what you're seeing right now. That's the extent of a color revolution. It's not some kind of like crazy conspiracy. It's just like what the U.S. admits to doing. It's just how that kind of shit operates. And again, like, yeah, leftists don't support the military police or any oppressive aspects of the Iranian government. They just want the U.S. to leave countries alone. And that's I really the only support I've ever seen any leftist express for Iran or its government in any way. It was just as an anti-imperialist force, as a country that is hostile to the U.S. and hinders its goals of world domination. Same thing with Russia. I mean, I guess we didn't make that clear since we were bringing up Putin and Russia earlier. It's like nobody really supports Putin or thinks he's a great guy. It's just we want to see the U.S., lose in its goals of unipolar world domination and even if you're like an anarchist even if you just oppose all governments it's like you should realize sensibly that it would be better if there were more governments in control over the world instead of just one with 900 military bases that is dominating all the others by proxy and it would be easier to fight all authority when you can divide and conquer them and have a multi multipolar world i think that makes inherent sense but sorry you had something nick no, I was just going to say, and like, <clears throat> just very simply, it's like, we have to believe that other people are going to do what they need to do within their own context and their own conditions and things like that, right? It's like, the savior mentality is what gets us into so many fucking problems. And again, it's not that, it's not a choice. Imperialism is not necessarily a choice. It's just, a, it's just a growth of capitalism. You know what I mean? But this whole idea we need to dispense with, right? Like, we have to believe that people are going to get together and do what they can because that's what they can actually affect in those country, right? It's like, yeah, sure, show solidarity with victims of police brutality in any context and stuff like that, right? But then on the flip side, when it comes to actual state intervention and government action, why don't we focus on like getting our government to, I don't know, reinstitute legalized abortion, you know, when it comes to like women's rights and shit like that? It's like, yeah, like, I don't know, like, focus on what you can actually, you know, what you can actually change. And I don't even know, I've only seen the headlines of it. I don't know what the actual issue was, but apparently the Democrats just supported 100,000 more police or 100,000 more something to police. I don't know. Again, I don't follow electoralism. I don't care. I already know what the Democrats are all about. This is not surprising to me. If this is surprising to you, you should get your head examined. How did you not know that the Democrats didn't mean it when they said defund the police and then they were going to fund the police more the second they got in office? Of course, this is what they're going to do. But of course, the calls for police reform in Iran ring hollow when the response to the George Floyd protest of a couple of years ago is to then add more police and to tell all the BLM activists to go fuck themselves. It's disingenuous. We get it. Like we, you don't actually care about Liberty or anybody's rights. Just you love police. I got it. I don't know. Do you got anything? Because uh, that's pretty much all I got. I think as far as the Iran thing, it's like, I haven't made our stance clear. It's just like, 
don't support U.S. military intervention anywhere. No matter how sympathetic, no matter how many babies and incubators they may show you, like, they're fucking lying. They don't actually care about human rights anywhere. Well, cool. We can wrap it up unless you guys uh, got anything else. Oh, um, well, I can talk quickly about the labor issues uh, with railroads. Oh, yeah, um, you did mention that. Yeah. So um, I'll post this in the Slack real quick. But basically, uh, I don't remember the exact timing on it, but in the last few weeks, various labor labor unions in the railroad industry uh, are legally distinct from all other labor unions. Uh, they have a different law that applies to them. Have been, you know, they they don't have a contract. They've been negotiating a new contract, and uh, it has to go through. Ultimately, the president and Congress can approve or disapprove this contract, which, like I said, it's different than all other uh, labor contracts. And they had a tentative agreement, I think, um, like about a week and a half ago. And some sources are saying, no, actually, they didn't have a tentative agreement. They just had like a very rough draft. And they decided to say that they had a tentative agreement so that it would push the approval process for the rank and file approving the contract to after the midterm elections. And basically, they want to kick the can down the road so that this isn't an issue in the upcoming elections. And a lot of the rank and file members are are very angry with the little bit of the leaked contract that co- has come out um, because basically it right now they basically have no sick days and no days off. They're on call 24 seven, 365. And um, basically, this new contract is giving them like three sick days a year to be scheduled in advance only on like Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and um, giving them like a small increase in pay that doesn't cover inflation. So, you know, and anyone that's talked to rank and file, any journalists that's talked to rank and file union members, they've all said, yeah, this is bullshit. You know, I'm not going to stand for this. You know, I don't know if there's really any movement for a wildcat strike. But there, a lot of people are just saying, I'm going to quit. I'm going to go work at another job because this is, I can't spend time with my family. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not getting my health needs taken care of. So really, I, it feels like by pushing this further ahead, the Biden administration and the uh, leadership in the, in the railroads and the unions are all just saying, okay, we're, <laughs> this shit's going to blow up some way or another, but we don't want to have it happen right now. So uh, I, I know other um, podcasts have covered it in depth. I want to say they talked about it on Well, There's Your Problem and a couple other ones, but uh, I can try and find that for the show notes whenever you put this out. But um, I was going to say, I think it's safe to assume that anybody listening to this has probably heard some podcast or another talk about the situation yeah. <laughs> in enough detail that they understand why these railroad workers are being screwed over just how bad the situation is. And um, yeah, I think that was the main development, right? Was that Biden kind of stepped in at the last minute to avoid the strike happening because everybody was getting amped up. Like I know with the labor movement, the way it is in the U S and people are getting excited about strikes. Finally, it's great. People, there was a buzz. Like people were really kind of excited to see this whole thing. Even if it shut down the economy, even if it like really screwed over a lot of people, I think they were excited to see some labor action happening on some kind of mass scale like that. And then, you know, if we are going to tie in a big message of this whole thing, it's like Biden steps in and does a lot of things, but it's always the worst thing. It's always the wrong thing. It's always like the far right thing. And then, of course, nobody cares about it because it's Biden instead of like Trump doing it. He's not tweeting about it. But I was interrupting you. Sorry, Brian, you were continuing. That's about all I had. I, I just, um, yeah, it, it would really screw up the economy if um, they shut down either because people quit or because they're on strike. Because a huge amount of agricultural goods go through um, on rail, you know, basically anything that's heavy bulk materials. Um, so like fertilizer, seeds, anything like that. So it's really going to disrupt uh, agriculture. And it already has been because the railroad itself is falling behind of of what they should be doing because of all this. Oh, and the the thing is, because everything is so intertwined. If one of these uh, unions goes on strike, basically that means that the entire thing is shut down. Um, so, I mean, there is some hope there that uh, 
basically like one union of like 500 people could shut down the entire U.S. rail system. Uh, which I don't know. I think that would be kind of kind of based, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. It is funny how many people are rooting for collapse of the U.S. So. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, just, I mean, it's just because they want it. They don't want it to happen so bad at this point. It's just like the perfect indicator that it would be the perfect time to do it just to like really show the power of labor. Right. Exactly. And here's our uh, here's our most you know pro labor president in you know seventy years if you take him for his word, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like the general attitude, even just among most workers in the U.S., is they just want a break. They just want some time off, even if it means at the expense of the whole supply chain just shutting down because there's no trains running anymore. It's like. That's been most people's response to this. Just like, yeah, go for it. See what happens. Fuck it. Who cares? Like, yeah. this whole thing is just a joke to everyone at this point. Like, I don't feel like anyone believes in the American project. And I also don't understand why that has not led to some kind of mass class consciousness. Like, how do you not feel that despair and just see the, the level of just not giving a fuck around you and everyone you work with, everyone you know, and then at some point turn that into a realization that we could turn this into something else that we want. Like it literally is just built on our backs. It's built on our action and our labor. So we should be getting the benefit of that. Like we should organize it in such a way that it works for us. And uh, I don't know, maybe there yeah. just needs to be like a TikTok that articulates that well enough. I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know, this is a little bit <clears throat> off, but I think it kind of, I don't know, it somehow ties into this two party system and how they really can't do anything for us. And like we know they can't because it's capitalism and the US is too inter the US as it exists is too intertwined with capitalism, right? To have an identity that could really escape what that all means. You know what I mean? But like one thing I was talking about today with uh, some comrades is that, you know, when we're talking about like a socialist society, right? Like we can have like the mechanistic ideas of like, all right, you know what, we get all our we get all our basic human necessities taken care of, right? But I think like beyond that, we need to actually offer something that would be exciting from like a national culture perspective and stuff like that. Right. And I, part of the, I guess what, how I'm trying to thread this needle is that like none of these parties offer anything new or rejuvenating about what America, you know, again, could be or should be right. It's like Trump comes out and the reactionaries come out and say, Oh, we need to go back to this time. Right. Like inherently by definition, reactionary and shit like that. And like Biden, Hillary, all these people come and say, Oh, well, well, nothing's wrong. You know, we're already great. We're already good and shit like that. And it's like, no, like we're not. And like, we all know that, like, you're just, you can't gaslight us into actually believing that. And I don't know, I'm just trying to like translate that into an idea of like how you could get people on board with the socialist project by actually like offering some hope for fucking the future. Again, just beyond like this whole idea that you'll get your healthcare. Cause yeah, of course we want those things. Of course we want that. But like, I don't know, man, like I just even per on a personal level feel really rootless in terms of like a, you know, I have no like affinity towards like a white U S culture or anything like that. You know what I mean? I think we're just, uh, I think we're a little ahead of the curve. And the tankies <laughs> are just a little bit, because that's where it comes from, at least for me as well. It's like I looked into, I wanted to see like what was going on with the U.S. and why even the most reasonable things, like I mentioned at the beginning, could not get accomplished. Why we couldn't get like healthcare and free college or any of the things that like other stable, what you consider successful countries have. And once you start looking into that, you see the class interest of the U.S., you either go down like a racist rabbit hole because you start to blame people that are in your own class and have no control over it. You blame like the boogeymen or you develop a class analysis. And I feel like a lot of people are going to get there, especially as things get worse. And tanky will become a slur really quick when the ruling classes realize that a lot of people will become cooler with communism, maybe even authoritarian communism. Uh, maybe they start becoming a little less scared of socialist countries existing, like the actual existing socialist countries now. And they start to try to adopt those policies or adopt the organization tactics that they use there. Um, I think, yeah, we are just a little bit ahead of the game. Because if you look at the mainstream narratives, it's like the wealthy people, they may be saying that everything is great and we have a lot of hope and they are building bunkers and everybody knows that they're building bunkers. So there's only so much you can hide the bunker building. You know what I mean? Like, you can't really hide that forever. And even the right, they have the poor version of it. They have their ideas about homesteading and going back to like a trad cath, uh, farmland kind of lifestyle. And they think that that's going to save them from the apocalypse. And that's not going to work either. Like, we are all in this together, whether you like it or not. And the only people who have a positive vision for that 
are the authoritarian leftists. I'm sorry, but like we're the only ones who have any kind of vision that doesn't just get immediately bowled over by some outside force and actually knows how to maintain itself because you keep the fucking fascists out intentionally. <laughs> and if you find them within, you can deal with them. Like you have you have ways of doing that. Sorry, what you have, Nick? No, I was just gonna say, and it's like when it, when it comes to like authoritarian leftism and what that can actually like authoritarian communism I'm just gonna i'm not gonna fucking dispense with the word leftism or you know what i mean yeah. but well like, i mean apparently leftist is right wing anyway according to the past so. <laughs> but i was talking about this whole idea in the context of you know some projects around the environment that i've seen um going on in china that i've read about right and like how they're actually like taking like very natural processes and natural like geological formations and actually implementing and integrating them into infrastructure to do things like i don't know prevent flooding and shit like that and like the, there's just an example of this one river where it's essentially they've created almost like this beautiful like bog land but it serves like legitimately as a buffer from flooding you know the banks of this city and you know so i have an engineering background and i'm like you know, like if I could just like if if we had like some effort like that where it's like, hey, we as a society need to go build shit like this as part of like our, you know, national effort to, you know, stop climate change and protect our cities, protect the people, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, put the profit motive aside. Like I would want to go do that just if if it was a surrounding like a really cool project. And I mean, and maybe they touched on that a little bit with like the Tennessee Valley Authority and shit like that. It's like getting people to work to try to electrify Tennessee. Again, it's not entirely the same thing. But like, again, a state sponsored project to improve like infrastructure and lives within the country. It's like these motherfuckers can't offer us that. And that's what we need. Do we have just a little Keynesianism as a treat? Just a little bit? <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. I mean, I, I want to do the Chinese version. You know what I mean? I want to do the China version, but whatever. Yeah. Like, What's up, Brandon, by the way? Sorry. Didn't say how when you jumped in. How's it going? That's all good. I have headphones in. Hey, nice. Hey. We're actually going to record for about like, I don't know. Five more minutes. We'll just start wrapping it up. But we started at eight. Sorry, I don't know if uh, we miscommunicated. Oh, I thought it said nine. No, I mean, did I say nine? Did I like? Is that why there was nobody here tonight? Everybody's gonna start popping in now. Oh no! (laughs) I mean, I will know if a bunch of people just pop in in a minute or two. But I don't know. We were just about to start wrapping it up. Oh yeah, I fucked up completely then. No, it's all right. But does anybody else have anything before we uh, start wrapping it up? Then that's all I wanted to say about fucking. We really just shit on Brandon, you know, to let you know, I'm sure you'll hear when it comes out, but we just shit on Biden and the Dems the whole night, basically just trying to get at that. Yeah, there are problems. There are a lot of things that they could do to fix those problems. And instead, they would rather fund a bunch of Nazis. And and it's so shitty, especially because it does give the, the right a bunch of ammo. Like the fact that there are even there is even room for like the fucking MAGA communists to act like. The dem- okay, so in case I didn't want to talk about MAGA communism tonight, but just for like the last couple seconds, that is like their one thing that they will come at us for, right? Is that they say that we, they just have to assume that we support Democrats. It's like if you're not a MAGA communist, then they always have to say, oh, well, I guess you must be voting for the squad or you're a liberal. It's like, uh, no, we fucking hate Democrats. Like we spend most of our time shooting on Biden, the Democrats and all imperialists. It's almost like you can't make an honest argument if you start from a flawed position of, uh, I don't know, a fascist in sheep's clothing. If you're a fascist and you try to say that you're a fucking communist, it's weird. Weird that works. All right, I'll stop ranting. We can actually wrap it up. Thank you, Jeff. I double-checked. I misread something, and 100% you said 8 to 9. Well, now I feel better, at least. Yeah. I was going to be really pissed at myself if I fucked it up. Nope, I'm just a a very organized guy. Cool, cool. All right, well, that's a good note to wrap it on. All right, thanks, gentlemen. I'll see you next time. See y'all later. Have a good one. Have a good one. Take it easy, Bryant. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.